Ravi Zacharias, Ravi Zacharias was born in India, reared in Canada, and educated in the United States. He is an author and a lecturer on why Christianity is true. He is what um, people would call, uh, he studies apologetics, apologetics. Apologetics is why Christianity makes sense, why Christianity is true. And he's written many books in the field of apologetics. He tells a story about the time he was in Columbus, Ohio, at Ohio State University. Um, his host was driving him through campus, and Ravi Zacharias said that they passed a building called the Wexner Center for the Performing Arts. He said to his host, what is that building? And his host said, well, that is America's first postmodern building. And Ravi Zacharias said, what is a postmodern building? And the host said, well, the architect determined that when he designed this building, he designed it with no design in mind. And Ravi Zacharias said, well, why, why did he design a building with no design in mind? And the host said, well, because he's postmodernist. And, and life itself is unstable, said the architect, and so why should the building have any design or meaning whatsoever? And so if you go to the Wexner Center for the Performing Arts, um, there are pillars that have no purpose. There's a staircase that leads to nowhere. Um, this architect has this senseless building built and somebody paid for it. And Ravi Zacharias said, so, I mean, let me get this straight. His argument is that since life has no purpose and design, why should the building have any purpose and design? And the host said, that's exactly right. To which Ravi Zacharias replied, did he do the same with the foundation? Yeah, that's how the host responded. He giggled. Because you can fool with the door frames and the infrastructure as much as you like, but you dare not fool with the foundation because it'll call your bluff in a hurry. You can get away with random thoughts that sound good in a defense of a worldview that is senseless, but if you fiddle with the foundations you're going to see some serious effects. Now today, I want to begin a study on the foundations. The foundations. The foundations, foundational truths for life as God intended. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 20. You'll find that on page 61 of your church Bibles. And we're going to begin a series within a series. Uh, we have been studying through the book of Exodus. And starting today, this series within a series is a study on the Ten Commandments. And what I'd like to do right now is just read uh, this passage of Scripture in full, Exodus 20, verses 1 
through 21 as we begin to explore really what will be a flourishing life, a life built on the foundations of God's truth. Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word. The foundations, the Ten Commandments, or literally known as the Ten Words, the ten words, God spoke all these words. And these words serve as the fountainhead of all of the laws of Israel. So in chapters 21, 22, and 23, there are case studies, and these case studies can be cross-referenced back to these ten words, these ten commandments. And I'll say that these Ten Commandments are the fountainhead of American law as well. Second President of the United States, John Adams, said, As much as I admire the Greeks, I believe the Hebrews have done more to civilize the world. Moses did more than all their legislators and philosophers. And when you go to Washington, D.C. to visit the United States Supreme Court, 
Moses and the Ten Commandments are sculpted in several places at that facility. Alan Dershowitz of Harvard Law School once said that the Ten Commandments serve as the foundation for all Western law, including American law. And no wonder the Ten Commandments have been called the most famous record of absolute truth in the history of humanity. The Ten Commandments. Now, today, I want to focus on two words. I want to focus on intent and content. I'd like for us to consider the intent of the Ten Commandments. That is, what's the context of the Ten Commandments? Why? Why do the Ten Commandments? Why do the Ten Commandments show up in Exodus chapter 20 instead of Exodus chapter 1? What's the intent of the Ten Commandments? And then I want to discuss the content of the very first commandment. What does it mean? And how does it apply? Intent for the ten, content for the one. And let me just interrupt myself if I could to just say something, church family. Um, and, and, and for those of you who may be new to Christianity or maybe exploring the Christian faith, I, I think my fear in our conversation and in our study about the Ten Commandments would be that we walk away from here thinking, okay, you know, the guy behind the wooden podium thinks that I need to keep all of these really well, and then if I keep all of these really well and do that well enough for a long enough time, when I die and get to the pearly gates, St. Peter might give me a thumbs up, you know? And I want to I just say, up, I want to try to just deconstruct that that is not what we believe. That's not gospel. That's not good news at all. Um, religion says, do more, try harder. The gospel says, I will give you. I will give you. And that's really what I want us to walk away with, uh, not just this Sunday, but every Sunday you're here at Windsor Road. I don't want you to think that God thinks that if you keep enough of these, you know, and you're, you tip the scales at 51%, then you, you know, okay, I'll let you in. No, no, that's not good news at all. The good news is that God, through Christ, and in Christ, and only through Christ, by grace, through faith, can we have a relationship with him. Now, you might then ask, well, what's the purpose of the Ten Commandments? And, well, that's, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the intent, and I want to talk about the content. So that's really where we're going. Here's the intent. The intent of the Ten Commandments. It's the word freedom. Freedom, that's the intent of the Ten Commandments. God did not give the Ten Commandments so that Israel could escape Egypt, but so that they could remain free as a nation. You see, Exodus, Exodus begins with Israel in slavery. And God calls Moses, and Moses goes to Pharaoh, and then after ten plagues and a supernatural rescue through the Red Sea, God led this nation to Sinai, where he told them who he was. I am, I am a holy God of love and grace. And then after introducing himself and telling Israel who he is, 
God proceeds to tell Israel who they are. You are my treasured possession. You, you are like the, the, the crown jewels of the king's personal treasure. That's who you are. And you're, you're the treasured possession. You're a, a royal priesthood. You're a kingdom of priests. A priest is a go-between. And you're a holy nation. And as a priestly, regal nation, my will for your life is to image my holiness to the nations. So it's in that context God gives his word, the gift of his law, his will. And so once again, uh, God's law comes after uh, the gospel. So, so the Ten Commandments don't appear in Exodus 1 with God establishing his expectations of, uh, uh, as a condition for release. Rather, Exodus 20 verses 1 and 2 begin with telling Israel who God is and what he has done for them. And that's why verse 1 says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, I am that I am. I am the Lord, your God. I'm on your side, the Lord says. I'm not some legalistic deity who wants to restrict you with religious red tape. I am for you. And I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So think of the Ten Commandments as a freedom charter. And when you look through each of these commandments, think in terms of freedom. For instance, freedom from the bondage of false reality. Freedom from the bondage of man-made things. Freedom from the fear of curses or false oaths. Freedom from the bondage of busyness. Who wouldn't want that today? Freedom from the bondage of busyness. Yeah, it's here. How about freedom from elder abuse? Yeah, that's the commandment about honoring your father and mother because that commandment was first given not to nine-year-olds, but to adult children whose parents were responsible for 40 years of wilderness wandering. So, how do you treat a parent who has caused you a 40-year delay in where God wants you? How do you treat that parent? See, See that's why this is so necessary. Freedom from... A society that does not value life. Freedom from the notion of stealing as a way of life. Freedom from lying. Freedom from materialism. In other words, the Ten Commandments is a freedom charter. And I've brought you out of that. This is, this is how freed people stay free. And, and the scripture says, I brought you out. And the you uh, in our text it's in the singular. That is, it's personal. In other words, God spoke the 10 words to Israel without a mediator. So God didn't give the 10 commandments to Moses, who then gave it to Israel. 
God spoke directly to Israel. We know that because at the conclusion of the text that I read, the people saw the thunder and flashes, and that's when they said, we can't have the Lord speak to us anymore. Let the Lord, Moses, you let the Lord speak to you, and then you tell us, because we just can't. People who say, I wish God would speak to me, you should read that. Yeah. So, but but these words are in the singular because every Israelite hears this. And this is really important because in the ancient Near East, often it was just the nobility who had uh, legislative information and they passed it on to the masses and it was a form of exercise of power. But here, the Ten Commandments are accessible to all. And all are accountable to keep them. So the Ten Commandments must be repeated regularly and read regularly and reiterated for the good of the nation. And some might wonder why the Ten Commandments were given negatively. In other words, why not express these ten positively as inalienable human rights? Here's the answer. God wants each of us to think first of the inalienable rights of the other person and not first about our own. And so as you read the Ten Commandments, note how other-centered they are. And do you get what God is trying to say? Life is not about you. It's about others. And so in this way, these 10 words or these 10 commandments spell out what love for God and love for others are like. And the first five commandments detail love for God. And then the second five commandments detail love for others. What did Jesus say were the two most important commandments? Loving God and loving others. And so these commandments explain and define in concrete terms what that love looks like. Now, if you are new today and you're looking at these verses and you might be skeptical, skeptical about organized religion or Christianity, I understand that. Let me just ask you this question. What do you think our world would look like if, if we did keep these commandments? Hmm? I mean, what would your neighborhood look like? What would your family look like? We wouldn't need copyright laws. We wouldn't need cybersecurity. We wouldn't need an auto or a home or a church security system, would we? You wouldn't need passwords anymore, would you? Not if we all kept this. We, we would not have the hashtag Me Too movement if we kept these commandments. We wouldn't have abortion clinics. We would have healthy marriages. We wouldn't be so crazy busy because we would take a day off and exercise a rhythm every seven days. If we all kept these our thinking would be pure. Our speech would be pure. And we'd still disagree. Yes, we'd still disagree, but we'd be civil about it, wouldn't we? 
and our neighborhoods would be more desirable, we would be more desirable. And the watching world would gaze in amazement. Who are these people? And their incomparable lives. And who is their God? I want to know that God. So you see, the Ten Commandments are, are not to be followed to show that we can somehow earn our way into heaven because we can't do that. We can't earn our standing before God. Rather, we keep these commandments to serve God's glory and the good of his world. Do you know what the healthiest thing that we can do with our freedom? The apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 5, 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So the freest people are those who serve others in love. And the intent of these 10, were, they were given to a free people so that they can stay free. That's the first word. Intent. Let's talk about content now, all right? Let's consider the content of the first commandment in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, did you notice that this first commandment does not prohibit an activity? This first commandment is about a relationship. And specifically, God forbids Israel from giving absolute allegiance or loyalty to any human or superhuman relationship other than him. To put it this way, verse 3 says, there is one God who wants all of me. There is one God who wants all of me. God wants every man and woman and child on earth to worship him alone as God, to acknowledge his existence to affirm his sovereignty, to obey his directives, to honor him by directing the ultimate affections of their heart toward him and, and toward him alone and toward him first. There, there is one God who wants all of me. You see, for 430 years, God's people were immersed in the culture of Egyptian religion, which was called polytheism. Polytheism, a culture of many gods. And polytheism taught that the gods resided in nature, a rock, a river, a cow. Danger lurked on every side and special incantations and superstitions of these temperamental deities had to be appeased. And when God sent Moses to liberate Israel through the 10 plagues, each of those plagues was directed against an Egyptian idol or an Egyptian god. So it was a militant assault against Egyptians uh, against Egypt's religious system. So the river god was plagued with blood. The sun god was plagued with darkness. So you could say that the ten plagues constituted a, a cosmic street fight between the one true god and the pretenders of Egypt. And stunned Egyptians saw their worldview shattered. How could a nation of slaves defeat a world power? And Israel was in awe of the uncontested dominion of the Lord. 
And so God says to his people Israel, you've lived in a culture where polytheism is a way of life, but no more. Let me tell you a little secret. A river is just a river. A cow is just a cow. A gnat is just a gnat. All of these come from the creative hand of the one all-powerful and all-knowing God. And those other gods, they don't exist. They're not real. They're fantasies. Your worship must be based in reality. I want reality-based worship. And so verse 3 does not mean you may have other gods, but keep me first. Nor does it mean, well, there are other gods, but I'm the strongest. Rather, verse 3 means, I am the one and only, the supreme Lord of the universe. You shall have no other gods before me, that is, before my face or before my presence. What's behind this command is the principle that some things are not meant to be shared. There are some things God won't share. He does not share his glory. And he will not share his people with another God. If a husband really loved his wife, he could never endure sharing her with another man. And I mean, what do you suppose might happen if a husband came home uh, one day after work and his wife came home and they meet there and, and the, the husband has another woman with him. And the husband says to his wife, now honey, I love you. I love you. But I met someone else. And I like her. And so there are going to be some nights where I'm going to come home. And, but there may be some nights that I'm not going to be home. I'm going to be with her. And I really think the two of you should, you know, get, get together. I think you'd be good friends. And we'll all just kind of live happily ever after. How do you think that might go over? Man, you just told me, right? Somebody's going to get murdered, right? Yeah. God will not share Israel with another. God has no colleagues. One commentator put it this way. Yahweh does not play well with other gods. Um, the family was going home from church and they stopped by the Dairy Queen and the father said that uh, it was a special evening because the, the daughter had just asked Jesus into her heart. And, and so the, the father was wondering how much his little girl actually understood. And so he asked her, sweetheart, do you want to go to heaven to see Jesus? And she said, yes. And then she said, but can I finish my dilly bar first? What's your dilly bar? Jesus and my dilly bar. Jesus and. Jesus and. Kevin DeYoung has written an excellent book uh, on the Ten Commandments, and we have copies of those out in the foyer uh, for you all after services. We paid $10 a piece for them, and so they're $10 or they're free. Uh, they're not going to do any good on the table. 
if they just sit there. So if you want to just study along uh, as we're going through this series, uh, it's an excellent book. And here's what Kevin DeYoung says. He says, the fault with God's people has always been that little word, and. The Lord is fine, but we want the Lord and. The Lord and stuff. The Lord and money. The Lord and reputation. We're happy to have God in our lives just so long as he fills only a part of our lives. We want a trivial pursuit God, a manageable deity to round out our lives and fill in one piece of the pie. But he has no interest in being just one piece of the pie. He wants the pie. He wants first place. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. There is one God who wants all of me. Now, someone might ask the question, well, okay, but if other gods exist, why would God command us not to worship them? And that's a good question. The apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we all know that an idol is not really a God and that there is only one God and no other. So why a warning against that which doesn't exist? You know why. The only existence other gods have is the existence we give them. Did the Old Testament idol Baal exist? No more than greed does for us. What about the Egyptian god Ray? Did that god exist? No more than racism does for us. The first commandment exposes something deep about the human heart, and that is we are wired to worship. We are worshipers. And God knows that we have the capacity to manufacture divinity, to create man-made deities. One pastor centuries ago, a pastor by the name of John Calvin once said that the human heart is an idol factory. And we can make a God out of anything. Your strength can be your God. Habakkuk 1.11. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. Your gold can be your God. Job 31.24. If I have put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. Your stomach can be your God. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Philippians 3.19. Your abilities can be your God. Acts 12, 21 says, On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not a man. So your heart can get hooked on anything. And when we go after these empty gods, we're like a mother laying aside her newborn baby in order to clutch a rag doll. And a rag doll is powerless. It will not come through when we need it most. And that's the crux. Because whatever gods you worship, they're not going to come through for you when you need them most. God said to Israel just a short while ago, you were oppressed. You were despised. You were humiliated. But I sent Moses. I worked the ten plagues. I brought you out of Egypt. 
I saw you through the Red Sea. I destroyed the army of Pharaoh. I sustained you in the desert. Did Baal do that? Did Molech do that? Did Dagon do that? Could they have done that? Did you see the look on the Egyptians' faces when they prayed to their gods to no avail? In their moment of greatest need, nothing happened. Wasted worship, wasted sacrifice, wasted service to a nothing, nobody, non-existent God. Is that what you want? When we focus our worship on anything else other than the one true God, we're the ones who get cheated. Because other gods are not going to come through for us when we need them most. Like the surrogate God of possessions, someone once said, there is no reason to be the richest man in the cemetery. What about the surrogate God of status? A question. Does anybody know who the following are? Richard Johnson George Dallas, William King, Henry Wilson. That's what I thought. They're former vice presidents of the United States. Isaiah said, the poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. He is trusting what can never give him any help at all. Yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this thing, this idol that I'm holding in my hand, a lie? Can we bring ourselves to ask that question? And one by one, the players in the game of life come to terms with the painful reality that earthly things just don't come through. People disappoint, promises get broken, possessions disappear. And all of this can lead an honest person to ask, well, who will come through for me? Where can I put my affections and hopes and longings? And the answer is in Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I'll come through for you. I'll come through for you in this life and I'll come through for you in the next. You never waste your worship when you direct it to heaven. And the beauty of Christianity is that heaven put on flesh and dwelt among us the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And we've seen his glory, Christ Jesus, the Lord. The Lord. And taste and see that he's good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, you know, there's a... It's very easy for pastors to take a look at this passage of Scripture and talk about the first commandment and then kind of go on a rant with the congregation about, you know, you better worship the one true God or you're else, you know, and... I, we could do that, but I'm about out of time. Um, let me, can, I just, can I just woo your heart here for just a minute and talk to you about the word Lord? Lord. When, when the Bible uses the word Lord, 
Uh, the Bible uses the word Lord as, as someone who has dominion, someone who moves people in one direction or another, someone who binds or someone who frees. And we all know the kind of Lord who binds. Some lord it over others using threats to get their victims to do their will. And they're bossy and they're demanding and they're oppressive and they use guilt and they use shame. And Others are kind of sneaky about, about it. They, use, they, they win dominion by pulling softly and quietly until you buy into what they're selling and then you're trapped. And once it gains dominion, you're, you're addicted to destruction and death. That's one kind of lordship. But I want to tell you, there's another kind of lordship. It does not coerce or manipulate. It woos. It woos. Uh, lovers have this kind of lordship. When, when a man meets a woman, they start a courtship, and they, they go places together, and they share secrets, and they enjoy each other, and their affection grows. And, and it's a kind of lordship that eventually eliminates the alternatives. And when it really takes hold, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's a love that never fails. And, and this kind of love in eliminating the alternatives brings freedom. And it's the freedom, it's the freedom of not having a choice. It's the freedom of being taken hold of and left with no alternatives the joy of a courtship, the enthusiasm for a job. It's taking a grandchild by the hand. It's hearing beautiful music. It's, it's sinking your teeth into a hot slice of freshly baked bread that's slathered in butter and honey. You know, when you think about that, I mean, think of it that way. I mean, who would want to talk about having a choice? And yet, isn't that still freedom? Now, what kind of a Lord is Jesus? Oh, he's the second kind of Lord. I mean, he freely gave himself for you. He loves you. His death on the cross liberated us from the bondage of any other Lord. His cap captivating splendor removes every other kind of alternative, and in doing so, we are free like we've never been free before. There's no one like him. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's freedom. And so salvation is not the reward for obedience, it's the reason for our obedience. Christ didn't say, if you obey my commands, I will love you. He loved us. And his love controls us so, so that man, we've seen these other lords, these other pseudo-lords. Why would we want to follow them? 
when we see the real Lord, the true Lord, the one Lord. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God. Take away these pseudo-idolatrous alternatives so that we can be truly free because we belong to you. Continually help us taste and see that you're good you are splendid. You are beautiful. You are holy. You are majestic. You are mighty. You are strong. You are muscular. You are gracious. You are God. Take all of us, Lord, so that having taken all of us, we might be liberated. And thank you that these Ten Commandments are not handcuffs, but wings. And God's people said,